Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. In this two-part episode, we talk with Michael Watts, Director of Global Performance at Under Armour. Mike helps athletes from across sports to optimize their performance and recovery by improving the efficiency of everything from their training and nutrition to their movement patterns, their sleep, and their breathing. In fact, he has found that the majority of us, whether we're elite athletes or normal folks, breathe dysfunctionally. And by addressing this issue, we can learn to use oxygen more efficiently to increase both performance and the quality of our everyday lives. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm great, Lindsay. Yeah, how are you? I am good. Where are you? Portland, Oregon. So just navigating the the, the winter of snow, rain and uh, freezing temperatures. But yeah, all good. I feel like I could talk to someone in, in like, you know, North Carolina and they would say, I'm navigating the winter of snow, rain and freezing temperatures. It's kind of a crapshoot everywhere you go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's been, it's been fun for the uh, cold plungers though, like cracking the layer of ice as I jump in the cold plunge in the morning. So yeah, it's added a layer of intensity. You have a cold tub outside your house? Yeah, I do. So one of the things I invested in last year was a infrared sauna and then also got the cold tub as well. So it's it's not that sophisticated, just sort of fill it up with water. And on these nice cold days, you don't need to put any ice in it. It's pretty cold, sub-zero. So yeah, I tend to do sort of the contrast therapy, the hot and the cold on most days. So we can talk about that a little bit later when we talk about recovery. I, I personally, I love the infrared sauna. I hate cold tubs. Like I hate it with the white hot intensity of a hundred thousand brightly burning suns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, there's, anyway. there's always that apprehension when you get in, but I feel amazing once I've done it. And yeah, we'll probably get into it. But I think yeah. if, if you can understand the why of why oh, you're doing I get anything, the why. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it can convince you to jump in. Oh, it's pretty funny. So you are the director of global athlete performance at Under Armour, but I do want to just start with getting a little bit of your background in sport. I know that you worked for a ton of football clubs, but I don't really know how you got to that point. What was your athletic background as a kid and, and growing up? Yeah, well, so I've, I've always played soccer or, or sort of global football as a kid growing up in the UK. And obviously that's one of the, the biggest sports there. So that was always a, a passion and interest playing through school and college. And when I was at college, my undergrad was actually in business and I never intended to go into performance or sport. And I, I think I landed in there by, by chance more than anything. One summer, I went to the US for six weeks and just coached soccer, came back to the UK, really interested in coaching. I was two years into my undergrad degree, so I was sort of too late to sort of pivot. So I continued and finished my business degree, but went into personal training and group exercise and spent about two or three years working in that industry, more with like normal population. And then just by chance, there was an English soccer team called Sheffield United who had just purchased a, a team in China. And they were looking for a fitness coach to go out and, and train the team. It was a men's senior team. And the assignment was two months and ended up spending there two years. And then once I came back from China, went back to Sheffield United and, and worked there for three years and went back to school and did my, my master's in sport and exercise science just to sort of fill that knowledge gap. 
And then from Sheffield United, went to Norwich City for three years, uh, had a great time there, and then moved on to Aston Villa for another three years, and also working with the, the women's national team for England. So all in all, I had about 12 years in professional soccer, um, the highest level, really, Premier League and national team. Had a great time, um, learned a lot in terms of not just sort of the theoretical side, but probably more the practical side of how do you go and work and coach a group of athletes and not always a group of athletes want to do what you are asking them to do. So that was always the challenge. And then sort of my transition to the US um, really led me on a different journey. I'd say by my own admission, I was very performance-based. It was all about sort of that bigger, faster, stronger model and just get people on the field and just make sure that they're available. And then once I came to the US, started to explore more what I'd class as probably the health and wellness side. And, and I really strongly believe that, that a healthy and well athlete is a great foundation to build performance. And what do I mean by that? I mean, if we can understand how somebody sleeps, how they recover, how they think, how they move, like how they breathe, all these fundamentals, if we can enhance somebody's health and wellness, I, I truly believe that performance goes hand in hand. And the current model of just bigger, faster, stronger, more weight, run faster, jump higher, I think is almost finite. Like you burn people out by doing that mentally and physically, you do burn them out. And, and there's only so far that will take you. So that's sort of my journey for the last, well, it's coming on 20 years now, Lindsay, which is pretty scary mm-hmm. um, in terms of working in this industry. I want to back up a little bit. As an athlete yourself, making the transition to coaching, it doesn't always go well for everyone. What did you like about coaching that made you want to continue? The positive about knowing the sport of soccer so well was that it was an easy transition to go and work in soccer. Having played it and having experienced it in terms of a sense of playing so much, it wasn't a foreign environment. The foreign environment for me was living and working in China. So Mm -hmm. there was the language barrier and the cultural differences. But I I sort of used that to my advantage of, okay, I'll throw myself into my work because I had no other distractions. It was literally work, work, work. The thing that I didn't understand was how to actually go and work with professional athletes. Like I had no idea. I came from a health and fitness background of training people in in a traditional gym sense of watching them on a cross trainer for 10 minutes. And then they went on a bike for five minutes. And then we did a bit of resistance work for 25 minutes. And, and then all of a sudden you say, right, you've got to take these athletes, prepare them for a game. You've got to work with them on the field. You've got to work with them on the gym. You've got to prep them and recover them. I was like, I had no idea what I was doing. And um, I sort of just learned on the job and it was a sink or swim moment for me. And just sort of embraced it and, and and it went really well. And one thing led to another and I'm sort of very grateful for that opportunity. And it was probably quite a forgiving environment as well to work in China where the athletes were very disciplined. They were very respectful. There was quite a strong um, relationship between a coach and an athlete in terms of the respect. And that's probably part of Chinese culture. So I think it allowed me to take sort of these small steps to learn and go. Whereas I think probably working in maybe a European or North American environment as your first job is probably a little less forgiving and athletes can be a little bit harsher. So it was a great 
great experience and it's probably a good grounding for me to to sort of get started in professional sport. Was it rewarding, obviously, for you to see the athletes you worked with do well? But I, I sort of think, did it also kind of make you wish you were still the athlete yourself? Yeah, because I was so young. I was 22 years old. So I'd literally just finished college. And then I was still playing at college and I was playing at a, a good level. And I, I was like, well, I want to keep playing. But working in, in the sport stopped me from playing because mm-hmm. all of my time was taken up and the time that I should have been playing, I was coaching or watching the team play. And you do get a realization that you're nowhere near good enough to play professionally. <laughs> so, so there was that component, but it was something where I understood that, okay, I'm going to have to stop playing this sport. And that's sort of where I found another love of mine, which was cycling, because the last thing I wanted to do was play soccer on a day off because I was literally 24, seven, six, seven days a week coaching, working with, with soccer players. And the day, the days I did get off, then I sort of went more into cycling. So you mentioned watching the elites and you you realized you're nowhere near good enough. What is it having worked with the gen population and been an athlete, high level athlete yourself, and then now worked with elites for so long, what is it that separates the elite athletes from the rest of the generally fit population? I think there's definitely genetics play a part when you, when you look at elite level athletes, they tend to adapt and respond a lot quicker than most normal people. So as we look at the research and we would say, this type of intervention might take this many days or weeks to occur, you see that accelerated in professional athletes. And it's very hard to quantify because many studies are not on professional athletes at that level. Mm. They tend to be on younger adults or collegiate athletes. And there's a huge gap, especially in soccer from collegiate to Premier League football. It's almost night and day in terms of the difference. So there was definitely that realization, okay, like these people are gifted. And usually what happens, and there's negatives and positives to early specialization, they usually get into the sport pretty young. So then they get a lot of repetition and a lot of hours, but not just from the tactical or technical sense, from the physical side as well. So they'll be doing strength work, they'll be doing speed work, and hopefully they're getting that stimulus at the right age. So then all of a sudden, once they hit sort of 17, 18, 19, as like a young adult, they've got all these training hours under their belt, whether it's physically or technically or tactically, and they're miles ahead of somebody who's maybe just, for me, for example, training once or twice a week and then playing once a week there's a big difference when you're training five, six days a week and playing once or twice a week. So it's huge. Like I think you can be a professional sports man or woman if you're not massively gifted. If you work really, really hard, I think you can still get there, but it takes a certain type to be that dedicated and that focused because you have to do it from a very young age and there's lots of distractions when we're young. But something I probably still believe in to this day is If you have a young athlete who is talented, they will make it to where they want to get to. It's just how high they make it. Mm -hmm. And usually the the system that they're in will determine whether they become world-class or whether they just become like really, really good. But they tend to make it, barring anything catastrophic, they'll tend to make it. And then you get those people where 
you have the person who is dedicated and super willing to work hard and then they're also gifted and then they get to that skyrocket level. Yeah. And they're the special, special athletes. I think they're few and far between because we I sometimes think we forget that athletes will start very, very young and they are children and they have, they still have the same mindset as any child in the world. They want to play, they want to sort of being one thing, then another thing. And you're asking them to be very disciplined at a very early age. So they have to have a, a real love for what they do. And whether that be kicking a soccer ball or throwing a basketball, like they have to have a love for doing it. And quite often you see these montage videos of these superstars when they were like five years old, swinging a golf club or doing something because they, they enjoyed doing it. And you do see the athletes that just work hard, like extremely hard workers, and they just get themselves through determination, sheer grit. They get to where they need to get to. But when you get that combination of, of talent meeting hard work, like that, that's unstoppable. And it's really interesting to see, but it doesn't happen that often. So you were with Nike a bit before you joined Under Armour and then you join Under Armour at both these places. You're working with athletes across sports, not just football anymore. You've got golfers and runners and American football players and boxers and whatnot. How did that kind of change your perspective on training? How is it different than working with just mostly soccer players? Yeah. So that was a real eye opener to go from basically training soccer players, male and female to then having different types of sports. And it really led to this, okay, if we're going to understand how to potentially assess or potentially guide a journey, what are the commonalities across people? And thinking about athleticism, not thinking about sports specific. So if you were to take different athletes from different sports, they have to train in a slightly different way on the field or on the court. But ultimately, the body's the body and the muscle's the muscle and the heart's the heart. And when we start thinking about how we condition them in terms of, let's say it's movement efficiency or their breathing efficiency, these things remain constant and they'll get to a point where they'll go and train their craft. And we talk about training the mind, training the body and training the craft. Training the mind and the body are more similar across populations, whereas the craft is where it becomes different. Like you sort of have to try and think about, okay, if this basketball player is going to go on court, what are their demands? What's their demands differently from a lineman or what's their demands differently from a a goalkeeper? And I think where we've seen a big shift in, in the industry now is we had the rise of sports specific training which in my opinion doesn't exist. I'd like, I, I think it's a bit misleading in terms of, let me just explain what sport specific is. You were getting people who were put an athlete in the gym and because they were a hockey player, they would attach a hockey stick to a pulley system and get them to do hits with the stick attached and say it's sport specific. In my opinion, total waste of time. The sport specific stuff comes on the field, on the court, when they're with the technical coaches. And we start to see now that some of the conditioning in terms of energy systems starts to happen in that arena because it's more specific in terms of the demands, whether it be continuous or intermittent endurance, whatever it might be. Whereas once you take an athlete off the court, off the field, and you have them and you say, how am I going to help support your craft? How am I going to help support your performance? 
what am I going to look at? That that's for me where there's more commonalities and training an athlete in terms of their power and speed off the field. Great. They need to do it, but they still need to train stability and endurance. And we need to think about how do we do that scientifically? Like what's the rationale? What's the evidence? Are we looking at somebody's even like DNA now or their genomics? Like what's the predisposition to an injury? Like we starting to understand these things as well now. So we're obviously getting a lot of data, but the fundamentals of training an athlete have never changed. I think we just see potentially on social media and the sexy side of training where we see an athlete running through something or throwing something or attached to something and that gets us excited. And then we say, oh, that that's how they're getting powerful or strong. It's like not the case. Like to get strong, powerful, resilient, the, the disciplines and habits that you have to do day in, day out that you potentially don't see. When you first meet with an athlete at Under Armour, say Under Armour signs a new, I don't know, pick a sport soccer player or decathlete or whatever they are, what types of testing do you do with them? What, how do you go about assessing what their strengths and weaknesses are and what you need to address to help them be better across the board? Yeah. Um, so it's a great question. And traditionally, when we test, it might be the outcome. And people would think about how fast can you run or how high can you jump or how strong are you? And that would be a traditional sense of how people would test. And we looked at it and thought, well, that's the outcome. Like if I want someone to run faster or be stronger or jump higher, is the answer just to lift more weight or run faster? And through sort of research and through investigation and talking to experts in the industry, it came back down to those fundamentals. So if I understand fundamentally how you move, then I can actually start to help with output and performance. And if I give you an example, we might run you through a movement assessment. And if we see a compensation that occurs throughout your kinetic chain, let's say your knees moving in as you perform an overhead squat, there is something going on within your human movement system that is creating that compensation. And we'd look at it as leaking energy. So you're leaking energy somewhere through your kinetic chain to perform that movement. So if we can try and fix that movement compensation, when we think about length tension relationships and force couple relationships, we actually can produce more force and produce more power. And we can actually accelerate recovery just by fixing a movement compensation. And we've not even sort of gone into the, the continuum of strength, hypertrophy, whatever it might be. So movement was a fundamental thing. Breathing efficiency, fundamental thing. You would think that most athletes breathe correctly. We mm. see a lot of dysfunctional breathing because there's only a few sports that really train the respiratory system. And they tend to be more water-based sports where they're holding their breath. So team sports or running or cycling can have very, very dysfunctional breathing patterns. So again, oxygen is critical for us as human beings and us as athletes. And if we can understand your breathing efficiency and increase that, that's going to help your performance. There's then when we look at things like sleep and recovery and nutrition, like really, really important, like fundamental pillars, how you're going to fuel yourself, how you're going to recover yourself, whether it be through modalities such as what we spoke about there, hot, cold at the start, or whether it be 
soft tissue or whether it be sleep, like really important, just fundamentals. And then a, a big component is the mind. Like when we start talking about what's somebody's personality, because we're all different and our personality traits are built and then they don't really change. So as a coach, how do you learn? Kind of just tell you and you'll be like, yeah, just tell me and I'll get on with it. Be somebody who wants to learn more. You want to know the why a little bit more. Um, what you like in a group dynamic, are you better off on your own? So we're starting to understand all these things. So when it comes to an assessment, we want to understand your mind. We want to know your personality. We want to know how you cognitively work in terms of what can you see? How do you see it? How do you react? Things like this. We want to know how you breathe. We want to know how you move. We want to know what your sleep habits are. We want to know what your lifestyle habits are. And we build what we call a very holistic or integrated model. And then once we've built the model, we can look at what we call areas of opportunity to say, okay, this is you as a being. These are the places we feel are areas of opportunity. Where should we go and work on? Like, where do you feel you can go and work on versus taking this expert approach of you need to do this because athletes have changed in the time I've worked with them that they want more ownership. And we're getting less athletes just doing because they're told, like they're getting into this state of, okay, help me understand why I should be doing this or how's this going to benefit me? So you, we talk about guiding a journey versus purposely saying, you must do this because long-term it doesn't work. Like they'll stop doing it or they won't understand why they're doing it or it's boring or they don't have time to do it. And we find that if we can really understand the why and, and help that individual understand the why we have a, a much better success. I want to ask a few questions about the breathing because when the normal people who listen to this podcast, a lot of the fancy recovery things like the infrared sauna or access to elite performance training is not accessible to the general public, but we can all breathe and we could all do breathing exercise. And most of us are probably not breathing in the most efficient manner. So how do you assess if the person is breathing efficiently and, and really what is efficient breathing so the rest of us can go out there and make sure we're doing it. Okay. So, so we breathe what 20,000 times per day. So it's something we do a lot and it's a really easy opportunity to increase your breathing efficiency and breathing has three main pillars to it. We have the biomechanics, which is the muscles we have the biochemistry, which is the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide and nitric oxides in there as well. And then we have the psychophysiological side of the brain and the body. So three main pillars. How we breathe influences how we think and how we think influences how we breathe. So just pause on that. So if we are in a stressed state, we will display more dysfunctional traits of breathing. Dysfunctional traits of breathing are with our mouth. So our mouth's open. We're using our mouth. It's noisy, so it's audible, and it's in the upper chest. And if you think about a stressful situation, somebody starts to display those traits. And you need what, the paper bag, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's the exact, like, the paper bag. So what's happening during that? So once you go into that stressful state of breathing, you are then switching on that sympathetic drive. You're going into the stress response. Sometimes we need it, other times we don't. So you're switching on that drive. You are off-gassing CO2. So you're getting rid of carbon dioxide because you're using your mouth and you're breathing, over-breathing, over-breathing. 
So all of, and then you are not using your diaphragm. Primary breathing muscle is your diaphragm, super important. So you've gone into this dysfunctional state. Could be okay in certain situations, but we don't want you to chronically display that because then it keeps the, the mind and the body in a sympathetic tone. So we know about the stress response, the relaxation response. And then you don't start to use the diaphragm and then you don't start to have the right oxygen gas exchange. So most people think carbon dioxide is a waste gas. I need to get rid of it. Get rid, get rid, get rid. It's really important that we have a, a good tolerance to carbon dioxide within our blood. So your primary response to breathe is the buildup of CO2. So once carbon dioxide in the blood hits a certain level, you will want to breathe. And we'll get to the assessment of how we assess that. If we can tolerate more CO2, we can actually deliver more oxygen to our cells. So oxygen will release in the presence of carbon dioxide. So if we have a higher tolerance, we can release more CO2. And the presence of CO2 actually helps relax smooth muscle. And we talk about easy thing to do there. Functional breathing is with the nose. You breathe in and out with the nose. It's breath in, breath out, natural pause. Breath in, breath out, natural pause. Make it slow. Make it deep. So you breathe into like the, the diaphragm. So you feel your ribs expanding. And that's what we call a functional state of breathing. So how do we assess it? So you can do something in the literature called like a breath hold test, or some people call it a body oxygen level test. And really what this is, is you'll take a normal breath in through the nose, a normal breath out, and then hold your breath on the exhale. You time how long you can hold your breath. And at the first desire you need to breathe, then you take a breath in. And it should be a non-stressful state and a calm breath in. And what this is doing is testing your sensitivity to carbon dioxide. If it's less than 25 seconds, you're probably a dysfunctional breather. You should be closer to 40 seconds. So this is one assessment in the literature that you can look at. You can look at things like somebody's end-tidal CO2, so how much CO2 they're breathing off. You can look at a high-low test, like are they visibly breathing into their diaphragm or their chest? You can do a questionnaire, a Nijman questionnaire. So there's, there's lots of different ways to understand dysfunctional breathing habits, but simple ways just to do that, that body oxygen level test, breath in, breath out, hold, first sign of air hunger, take a breath in, should be super comfortable and just sort of time that. And it makes a huge difference if you can breathe efficiently and functionally as a human being and as an athlete. So I would bet most people can't comfortably hold their breath for 40 seconds. How, you know, when you like I'm going to, I'm going to want to quantify this, obviously, like when you do bicep curls, you see your biceps getting bigger. How long do you have to practice this type of efficient breathing before you get better at breathing? Yeah, I see a difference in about four to five weeks Okay, where, where we can get somebody from dysfunctional to functional. So we can get that bolt score, body oxygen level test score up to about 25 seconds. And we can do it two ways. We can do it with formal breathing exercises. And there are things like looking at the cadence of your breathing. So thinking about the breath in, maybe four seconds, the breath out, maybe five seconds, and then the natural pause around two seconds. So that gives me about a six breaths per minute. We know that if we do six breaths per minute, it triggers the parasympathetic response. And it also helps in terms of heart rate variability and our buildup to CO2. 
or that we might do exercises where we just focus on the, the diaphragm. So put your hands around the lower two ribs. Every time you breathe in, you should feel an expansion and breathe out. And then we just find an athlete's journey and say, okay, right. Um, during your warm up, breathe like this, during exercise, breathe like this for recovery, breathe like this. We talk about piggybacking them on the biggest thing. Well, there's two big things, but one of them is bringing a consciousness to your breath and trying to think about throughout the day. Am I breathing correctly? Am I breathing in my chest? Do I have a natural pause after the exhale? Am I breathing with my nose? And is it calm? Because most people, when they check themselves, they're not breathing like that. The mouth will be open, the chest will be moving, and it'll be a little bit noisy. Or they're holding their breath without even realizing it. And that happens to people from a day-to-day. So bring a consciousness to the breathing. And then the big disruptor in the breathing space is taping your mouth to sleep. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about it's a seven to nine hour window when you could be breathing functionally with your nose all night, getting the benefits of the chemistry, the biomechanics, slowing down the breathing rate, eliciting more of a parasympathetic tone just by taping your mouth to sleep. But it's a, a huge psychological barrier to go, right, tape your mouth, but makes a huge difference. We, I, I've talked about this with a lot of people and like the, the fear everyone has this fear of waking up in the middle of the night with their mouth taped shut and and not remembering that they've done it themselves. (laughs) Yeah. You just mentioned poor food choices. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about nutrition. What what kind of nutrition assessments do you do with the athletes at at Under Armour? So yeah, the nutrition is the really, really tricky one. You can obviously do a blood profile or blood panel and understand somebody's deficiencies on probably more like a micro level. You can just simply go up to that macro level as well and, and talk to an athlete like, hey, how do you eat? And we're, it, we're also in the age of there's so many different diets now, keto, paleo, vegan, carnivore. And people can be influenced again by somebody they see on Instagram who is saying, this is the best diet that you can do. Look at me, I'm shredded, et cetera, et cetera. But we know from our genetics, not everything works for everybody else. So it's a way of trying to understand what works for you. And we go back to the real basics, Lindsay, and just say, think about a whole food diet that's nutrient dense and try and limit processed food, try and limit used sugars, refined sugars, and also think about the oils that you might consume and just start super basic and see how you feel. Do you follow a particular diet yourself? I wouldn't label myself as anything. I just try and eat as good quality as I can. I don't really eat any processed food anymore. Don't really eat any grains. And I'd say I would be more more on the side of paleolithic if, if I was to try and put myself in a bucket, which is quite a thing for someone who's now more of an endurance athlete, which yeah. would really push against the traditional model. But I feel better for it. Uh, it took me a while to adapt, but once I adapt, then I feel like I can... I can perform well. I can sustain my energy levels throughout the day, throughout training. So it really just depends on the individual, I think. And that's super hard to understand whether you're better suited, especially as an athlete. Because once you're an athlete and you're being paid to perform, you don't have as much grace to go and say, well, I'm going to try and be paleolithic. And then your performance sort of nosedives because 
you can't tolerate, or you've got a, a period of adaptability where your body's getting used to, okay, I can't really fuel off carbohydrate anymore. So I'm going to try and fuel a bit more off fat, but there's going to be this period where my body's not as efficient at doing it. It's going to take time. And that can take weeks and weeks to adapt. And this, there's still debate. Like you can look at someone like a, um, Louise Burke, and she would be very much more carbohydrate, carbohydrate, carbohydrate. Um, I'm just trying to think of the book. Um, it was, I think it was more like paleolithic diet and it was Joe Friel. And I can't remember the, the other author in the book, but they talk about being more paleolithic and they're both on the extremes. Um, but I always think there's a, a sweet spot for most people yeah. and it's trying to find that sweet spot and it's super hard to do. Do you find a lot of the athletes that you work with come to you and are already on some sort of, you know, restrictive type of diet like that? Or do they already come to you kind of in the whole food kind of eat whatever situation? Because I know a lot of the guys eat what's provided for them at the training facilities and it may not be a paleo meal or a vegan meal or whatever it is. So it can be hard to follow those diets. So do you find that they're more just kind of generally eating good food or do they have these set diets they're on? I think generally the okay. You don't come across too many. I think like you get a few high profile cases where they'll talk about being vegan or something else, but I tend to think they just eat what's put in front of them because as, <laughs> as you say there, a lot of the professional athletes will eat breakfast, lunch, and potentially dinner if they're on the road and they'll just eat what's put in front of them. Um, I remember an athlete I worked with in pro soccer that was really had a huge intolerance towards gluten. And this is going back, could be close to 12 years ago. And at the time it was one of these things I didn't understand. Like this athlete was saying like, I can't do this. I can't eat this. And we started to put on gluten-free options for the athlete and none of the other players would touch it. They were like, that's disgusting. <laughs> not going to have that. Not going to have that. And I think 12 to 15 years ago, the choices were pretty poor as well when they I think were. about it, but we're starting to understand more. I think more athletes than we probably realize have a, an intolerance towards gluten, but we sort of live with bloatedness or gas or sort of our stools that are probably not normal, but it becomes normal to us to feel that way after we've eaten or to feel that way during competition or whatever it might be. And it's trying to re-educate people on what that normal is. Like that is not normal. And, and that normal spans across sleep. Like they wake up and don't even know what good sleep is anymore because they sleep so crappy or don't even know what it feels like to be out of pain because they're so used to being in pain. So it's one of these things where as we start to educate and we start to think about nutrition and to eat well is expensive and it's not that accessible still, which sounds crazy, but it's much easier to buy whatever it might be, pasta, rice, and feed players with that or athletes with that than think about, okay, how are we going to get the carbohydrate we need into the athletes that's not refined or processed? Like It's tougher and it's more expensive. It's so interesting. We had two different athletes on the podcast who went and got a nutrition assessment just because... And one guy, a basketball player, was eating eggs for breakfast every day of his life since he was a kid and found out that he had an egg allergy. 
gave up the eggs and then didn't realize that he basically had a headache for 35 years. Like <laughs> it's, it's crazy, right? Some of yeah. the things that you, the, the science can tell you if you can get one of those food sensitivity tests. We started at the beginning talking about your ice baths and your infrared sauna and the contrast therapy. Are there any other kind of newer recovery modalities that you find are super beneficial for, for athletes? So say the accessible ones, if we start thinking about what's available to everyone, breathing, definitely thinking about slowing your breathing down in the evenings to that six breaths per minute, really, really good to help with the parasympathetic tone and and help onboard for sleep. So that would be one. Sleep is another one without going into too much detail. I think planning recovery within to training is something that doesn't happen a lot, which sounds crazy, but thinking about when your recovery blocks are going to appear and thinking about how you're going to feel at a certain point in that training phase. And most of us will build a training plan and not think to yourself, well, if I'm going to load myself and train hard, I'm going to feel crappy here. or I'm going to feel fatigued or tired or sore. So the next two days I might factor in some recovery. We don't tend to periodize and think about recovery. So that would be Another thing I'd say, think about recovery. And then other recovery modalities that I really like, which probably gets a bit more into tech. I love the compression boots. I think they're good in terms of blood flow, lymphatic flow. I think they're a good benefit. Infrared sauna, big fan. And then cold plungers, big fan. And you don't necessarily need the sauna or the the cold plunge. Like You can still get some of the benefits with a hot bath or with a cold shower. Um, so I'd sort of point towards those as good modalities. I really like manual therapy if people can get access to a good manual therapist and it doesn't always have to be sports massages in like this hurts. I'm going to get into the knots and think about a relaxing massage to get into that parasympathetic tone a little bit. Um, so I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of general sort of self-care in terms of It might be having a percussion instrument such as like a trigger point gun and and sort of just doing that over your body and then having a stretch, like taking some some responsibility and not always being super passive. And then another big one I think that we don't see a lot of is just the contact with being outside or in nature or walking and know something you do a lot of. And it doesn't have to be like a killer hike, just like a very simple, easy walk around the park or the neighborhood where you're not on the phone, you're breathing correctly, and you're taking in some of the natural light and air is really important. I say to people all the time, if they're in like a bad mood, I'm like, you need some sunlight and some trees. Exactly. (laughs) I think they all think I'm crazy, but I swear to God, I feel so good after sunlight and trees. Yeah. And the research is there enough for us to know that it works. Like it's not this woohoo type of like pseudo site. It's there, like getting out into nature, getting sunlight, having some low intensity physical activity is going to help you recover. And a lot of it is to do with the mind. A hundred percent. I'm so on board with that. I would sleep outside if it wasn't so cold. (laughs) (laughs) This concludes part one of our conversation with Mike Watts. Be sure to check out part two and follow Mike on Instagram at at flow two plus that's F-L-O two plus and check out his website flow two plus.com. 
You can also follow Under Armour on both Instagram and Twitter at at Under Armour. That's A-R-M-O-U-R. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production. Podcast.